Sunday morning, we're studying the book of 1 Corinthians together and a series entitled Christian Living in a Pagan World. And if you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and if you just wave and get their attention, they'll get you a Bible. And then uh, please, if you don't own a Bible, make that a Bible, a gift from the Lord to you today. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we pick things up in verse 6. Paul writes by the Holy Spirit, However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Holy Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? And even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things which have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man, that is the unsaved man, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And it doesn't get any better than that. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the truth that is found in it, in every line, every precept, every jot, every tittle. We thank you for your revelation of yourself in your word. And we just open up our hearts and our minds and our spirit to you, for you to just speak to us right from your throne, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. We live in Corinth, Lord. It's all around us, not just in this city and not just in this state and nation, but the whole wide world is becoming Corinth all at once, Lord. And we need your instruction on how to not only successfully navigate all of this and survive, but way beyond that, Lord, to be anointed by you, to live a different kind of life that brings hope to a world that has no hope except the hope that you give to see a different quality of life lived before them. And so, Lord, we pray that you would protect your call upon our lives, that you would further equip us in your call upon our lives through the study of your word this morning. And we ask again that you would do that by your Holy Spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. 
The city of Corinth, like all Greek cities, was very much enamored with man's wisdom, as Paul describes it in chapter 2, verse 4, with the persuasive words of human wisdom. The city of Corinth was not only enamored or infatuated with human wisdom, but they were also enamored by great oratory and uh, excellence of speech, as he describes it in chapter 2 of verse 1. They loved oratory skill. They loved gifted public speakers. And because this was the context in which the church at Corinth existed and was ministering in the middle of the Christians in that church began to feel great pressure that they felt that they would not be successful in preaching the gospel to that Corinthian culture and leading people into a relationship with the Lord and being discipled in the things of the Lord without also matching all of this oratory ability and mixing in the persuasive words of human wisdom in order to accomplish that. And they felt that in order to reach the Corinthian culture, they would have to find men and women who were deeply steeped in human wisdom, coupled with a a great, great skill at communication. But Paul tells us in verse 4 that when he came to Corinth, he didn't come to Corinth with persuasive words of human wisdom, and he did not come with that deliberately. It wasn't that he couldn't have done it but that he chose not to do it. He did not try to persuade them to put their faith in Christ for salvation based upon human wisdom. And he tells us why, because he didn't want anyone's faith to be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God, verse 5. And as we simply take the truth of God's gospel, of his invitation to salvation, the truth of his word, And if we will simply deliver that as Christians to people's lives, the Holy Spirit will always be faithful to take that truth and add his amen to it. And the word amen means that's the truth or so be it. We can never, ever cause a person in and of our own uh, speaking skill or our own wisdom to ever see their need for Christ or to convince them to come into the body of Christ or become a Christian. That requires a work of the Holy Spirit. And Paul recognized that. But he recognized as well that as we would share these truths, no matter what the reaction might be outwardly that people have toward what we're sharing with them, that the Holy Spirit will be faithful to add his amen or that's the truth or so be it to what it is that we have spoken into their hearts. Now, the pressure that Christians in Christian churches can sometimes uh, feel to the desire to be considered smart by the culture or to be uh, considered, you know, wise in the eyes of the unsaved world around us, that wasn't just an ancient problem. We don't look at it and say, well, boy, those Corinthians sure had to deal with it, but we're 2,000 years removed from that, and don't we live in a very different world, and we don't have to think about that at all. The fact of the matter is that the temptation is just as strong today, and I would say probably quite a bit stronger. And oftentimes, Christians are tempted to gain the world's attention and the world's admiration 
by introducing some of man's wisdom into our thinking and into our teaching. Or you have sometimes individual Christians within a church, or you can have Christian leaders within a church that will lose their way, and they actually think that man's wisdom on certain spiritual issues are actually superior to God's wisdom on those same issues. And so they begin to then embrace God's wisdom or man's wisdom over God's wisdom, and they attempt to make some kind of a hybrid out of uh, mixing the two things together. And the result is that it mars Christianity horribly. It misrepresents Christianity in a terrible, terrible way. And it always makes Christianity something far inferior to what it is that God intends Christianity to be and the blessing that He desires it to be in people's lives. Man's wisdom can never improve on a Bible-based Christianity. Man's wisdom can never improve upon the Christianity that is found in the Bible. It can only mar that Christianity. And the reason that man's wisdom can never improve upon authentic Christianity is because an authentic Bible-based Christianity is already perfect. And we need to hear that. And we need to know that. It's already perfect. It cannot be improved upon. And by man's wisdom or our individual wisdom or the wisdom of the secular world all around us. And the reason that it cannot be improved upon by man's wisdom is because it's already based on the greatest wisdom that exists, and that is God's wisdom. I can think of a number of examples of this kind of intrusion of man's wisdom into Christianity that's been very, very successful in my time as a Christian that has done terrible, terrible damage to how Christianity is represented and even worse damage in hijacking people's individual and personal relationship with the Lord and taking it far away from what God intended it to be and making it something that God didn't intend at all. And so these examples of human wisdom being introduced into Christianity and the resulting damage that it does, how it mars Christianity in a way that God uh, never intended that would be the case. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus was ministering one day, and a lawyer came to him. And a lawyer in those days was an expert in uh, the law of Moses. He was a religious lawyer, so we've got a very religious man. And he comes to Jesus, and he has a question on his mind. <clears throat> and it's probably the single greatest question that the scribes and the Pharisees and all the Jewish religious leaders of the day batted back and forth. And the question was that he posed to Jesus is, what is the single greatest commandment of the law? Well, the law of Moses is made up of 613 commandments. And so this was an ongoing um, religious discussion and debate that they would have over what is the single greatest commandment. Jesus responded to the lawyer. He didn't hesitate 
one second at all, just very, very decisive, his response unmistakably clear. And he said, this is the single greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, and all of your strength. This is the first and great commandment. Jesus then didn't wait for him to ask what's the second greatest commandment, but Jesus then kind of threw it in as a freebie. And he said to the man, and the second greatest commandment is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then almost as if anticipating what men in their own wisdom would try to do with the simplicity of all of this, Jesus went on to declare, on these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. And he he reiterates that all of the law and the prophets, the entirety of the Old Testament, is encapsulated in these two commandments and that there are two commandments and not three commandments. Well, some years ago, many of you remember it, and uh, the whole self-esteem movement exploded in the United States culture. It is more dominant and it is more powerful as an influence in our culture today than ever it was 25 years ago or however many years ago that it began to rear its head. It's just now it is accepted as fact and it is so dominant and so entrenched a truth that nobody fights against it. It's just a uh, recognized as being the way. But back then, it wasn't so. This was something that was new. And so with this great force, the self-esteem movement exploded on the scene in the United States. And the thinking was that the reason that people were having so many problems and that that generation was having more problems than the previous generation, nobody thought to think that it was a departure from God and the foundation of His Word from that from that particular generation and not wanting to take God into consideration that came up with the idea that it's because people didn't have enough uh, high enough self-esteem. So whatever the problem might be in their life, they needed to have this self-esteem nurtured. And so this thing exploded on the scene. It became so big it was the blob that ate St. Louis and it gobbled up the United States of America and moved all around the world. And And not only did it do so in a secular world, but it also made uh, unbelievable and massive inroads into Christianity and into individual Christians' lives. And here's how it got introduced into Christianity. Uh, Men began to reason and they said, well, Jesus told us that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. But what if I don't love myself? What if I don't like myself, much less love myself? How in the world can I love my neighbor as myself unless I first learn how to love myself? And so with that thinking, it gets introduced in this great need. A third commandment gets added to Jesus' two commandments. I need to love God, and then the newly introduced commandment that doesn't exist, I need to learn to love myself, and then I can love my neighbor as myself. The problem with this is that might be the very best thing that the secular world can do for those that are not a part of the kingdom of God. But the problem with that thinking for the child of God is, number one, 
it doesn't work. And worse than that, it results in a complete disaster because a person will then be pulled into the self-esteem or the self-love movement or trip, and as a result, all of their time and their attention will go there. They will become completely self-absorbed, and as a result of that, no person who's self-absorbed will ever have time to fulfill the other two commandments of loving God with all of my heart, all of my mind, all of my soul, all of my strength, loving my neighbor as myself. Loving myself, if I think that's the problem, that becomes an all-consuming thing. If I fall prey to that, it will take every minute of my day before I feel like I'm making inroads there and satisfying. There will be no time left for a relationship with God. There will be no time to give consideration to anybody else, much less loving them. The problem is, is that selfism and selfishness is bondage. And it will always keep the child of God from experiencing the Christianity that Christ died on the cross to provide for us. Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. And he who desires to save his life will lose it, and he who chooses to lose his life for my sake will find it. And Jesus, when he calls us to denying self, it's not to deny myself something, but it is to deny self. The big I, me, and my that wants to completely dominate my own life and then dominate your life as well. And so he is calling on us as Christians to reject a self-focused, self-dominated, self-determining life for the simple reason that Jesus never lived it. I can never become like Christ and add that third commandment because it will move me from Christ-likeness. Jesus said that he came into the world not to be served. It's not about I, me, my, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In essence, saying that true life as God the Creator has made us is found in those two commandments, loving God, and then out of the overflow of that relationship, loving my neighbor for the glory of God. Jesus wasn't saying that we, were, that we need to learn to love ourselves. But Jesus taught, and the whole New Testament teaches, that we are to love others just the way we already love ourselves. And the fact of the matter is we love ourselves. The Bible never operates on the fact that we don't love ourselves enough. It tell, Jesus was saying that we need to love others to the degree that we already love ourselves. We love ourselves. Who do you think about all the time? Who do you think about at least 95% of the time? You think about you. You don't have a self-problem of neglecting self. Then everybody else in my whole life has got to deal with the scraps of the 5%. No, we, are, we love ourselves. We are already very self-focused. And we are already very uh, self 
consumed. We do it very, very naturally. You go to a family reunion. They get all, you know, 60 of you together and somebody takes a picture. And then everybody goes in and gathers around the computer or, you know, the iPad to look at it. You, you look at it. Oh, it's terrible. On what basis? On the basis of what you look like. Doesn't matter what the other 59 people look like. They look like Prince Charming and Maid Marianne or whatever. I mean, it's the best picture they ever took of the rest of them. It's no good because I don't look any good in the picture. Or it's the greatest picture in the world. Everybody else has got pink eye in it, and, and it's a complete loss. But I look great, and, you know, that becomes my Christmas card uh, portrait to everyone. You ever notice when someone gets to a parking spot before you do? Every time. You ever notice in a group setting when somebody else is getting more attention than you are? Every time. You ever notice when the other lines in the grocery store are moving faster than your line? Every time. And why is it of such concern to you? Because you're other-centered? If I was other-centered, I'd be so, oh, Lord, I'm so thankful I'm in this terrible line here. I don't know what the, and all, and that everybody else is just going flying right through the line. They're on their way home, and they're going to watch today's stage of the Tour de France, which runs four and a half hours before I get out of this line. No, we're upset about the line that we're in because we're completely self-focused. Related to that. If we loved our neighbor as ourself, naturally, we'd be thrilled that we were in the slowest line. Nobody's ever thrilled that they're in the slowest line. Now, we think about ourselves a lot. We really do love ourselves. And God knows that. That's why He tells us that in the Bible. So, should I have low self esteem as a Christian? No. The Bible teaches that we're not to be self consumed at all. And, and uh, we're not to be consumed with being dictated to ourselves in terms of of being dominated by self. The Bible teaches that we are not to have a self-esteem, but we are to have a Christ-esteem. We are to see ourselves on the basis of how God sees us. And how does God see us? He loves us unconditionally, unfailingly. When I've been naughty and when I've been nice, he loves me more than Santa. He's for me. He calls me. I mean, you just get a grip on the, your seat. He calls you and me as Christians his treasure. That's how he views us. He calls us his beloved children. And the beautiful thing about moving away from our own self-assessment in terms of our value and all of these kind of things and moving to a Christ esteem is that what God thinks of us never changes. It doesn't change with my mood. It doesn't change with whether I'm sick or I'm not sick. It doesn't change with my circumstances. What God thinks of me and how He esteems me That is rock-solid, 
It never changes. And God knows that we need something rock solid and unchanging in our lives. The world that we live in is chaotic. The world that we live in is just crazy. It's unstable. Everybody can see that. And if we looked at our own lives and were unable to look at our own lives and esteem them in a way that God esteems them, and we did not have that as a, a absolute position of stability in our lives, then who could hold up in the craziness of the world? So we see ourselves how God sees us. And that takes us into a far better place, an infinitely greater, uh, better place. And so with this whole self-esteem movement, in terms of its intrusion into the body of Christ, you see how just a little bit of man's wisdom borrowed from the world completely hijacks Christianity, makes it into the exact opposite of what God intends it to be. It makes it into something that is just one more thing like everything else in the world and that is completely self-consumed to the neglect of God and to the neglect of other people. This thing has taken over entire churches, so many individual human lives taken over, and Christianity that they are living and experiencing is a million miles away from what it is that Jesus died on the cross to provide us for. Jesus did not die on the cross to lead us into a life of self-absorption. He died on the cross, among other reasons, to save us from such a life and to find life where it really is found, and that is in a relationship with God that is the most important thing in my life, and then out of that relationship, because God loves people, I want to love people on His behalf in the world that we live in. Man's wisdom always mars Christianity as God intends it to be, and it always does, does great damage to people. I think of another example. Yes, I will continue to step on toes. I think of another example of man's wisdom invading the church at the expense of God's wisdom and creating a mess is this commonly held idea that the cross of Calvary is a demonstration of our worth. And you've heard it over and over again, and that is, if you want to know what you're worth, look at the cross. That's where you can tell what you're worth. As if God got value for value at Calvary. Can any of us ever believe that God got value for value in the death of His Son on that cross? As if I deserved... Jesus' death upon the cross, as if that, that his death upon the cross was something that I merited. The cross of Calvary, according to the Bible, is not a demonstration of our worth. It is a demonstration of God's love. And there's a significant difference. The Bible says that God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for the ungodly. The cross is an expression of God's love, not an expression of our worth. Someone says, 
Well, I think you're making a mountain out of a molehill in all of this. Well, maybe I am, but that's what I do sometimes. But I don't think so in this point. Because if I view Calvary as an expression of my worth and something I merited and I deserved, then it will absolutely cripple my worship of God in terms of the depth of that experience and the depth of the gratitude that I'm going to offer up to the Lord. If I deserve the death of Jesus, then why should I praise God for that death, for that salvation? I deserved it. Now you remove from my life the mountaintop highest motivation and cause for praise in the Christian life, and that is that the Son of God came into the world and died on that cross for the forgiveness of my sins. You take that away from me, and you have stripped away virtually 75% of my worship experience. It then affects the quality of an individual's worship relationship with the Lord. And that is to rob somebody of something significant. No one who believes that they deserve Calvary will ever stand on singing, Great is my God. It will never happen. People stand and want to sing with their hands lifted up, How great is our God, because they realize that we didn't even remotely deserve Calvary, but He did it anyway, and that's a part of His greatness, and we want to give Him worship and praise for that. Now, the praise and the worship experience of the Christian who understands that it is amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me will be immeasurably deeper and immeasurably sweeter than the Christian who believes otherwise. Jesus said, he who has been forgiven much loves much. He who has not been forgiven much loves little. That recognition of how Good God has been to us. How forgiving He has been to us. Our love toward God is affected by that. And you stop and you think about how here's another intrusion of man's wisdom into Christianity and it can destroy an individual's awe of God and destroy their worship experience with God. And no one who walks closely with the Lord and knows what a worship experience with God means in a public setting like this and in our own quietness of our own home, well, no one that enjoys that wouldn't look and say, that is a terrible thing for man's wisdom to mar. And yet it's marred it. And it isn't just Protestantism alone that's guilty in all of this. You can easily move on to Roman Catholicism where the worship of Mary, did that come from the Bible? Or did that come from man's wisdom? That came from man's wisdom. And you look at Roman Catholicism, and I'm quite familiar with it, 
And you look at how many layers and heaps upon heaps upon heaps upon heaps of man-made wisdom makes up that system until the ability to find a Catholic who even knows that they need to be born again as Jesus declared in John chapter 3, in order to enter into a relationship with God, much less has entered into that relationship and is enjoying the fullness of the relationship with God that Christ died on the cross to provide, to find a Roman Catholic that understands either of those things or both those things is like finding an albino robin. Why has it happened? Because of the massive intrusion of man's wisdom into the system in violation of the Word of God. Jesus was continually rebuking the Pharisees of His day because of all of the man-made wisdom and traditions that they had introduced into the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, that hijacked the Old Testament away from being about a relationship with God by, based upon faith and looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, and it became all about works and human effort. And Jesus rebuked them continually for doing this making Christianity all about outward appearances and works. Let me say this. All legalism in the body of Christ is an intrusion of man's wisdom into Christianity. Now, that's quite a thing to say. But that's the truth of it. All legalism that exists within an individual's heart or in the body of Christ as a whole is an intrusion of man's wisdom into the purity of what God has called us to as Christians. And it will never, ever produce peace-filled disciples of Jesus. It will only produce frustrated, exhausted Actors. And Jesus spoke to those religious leaders and he said, And that in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And it goes on and on and on and on even today. Again, man's wisdom can never improve upon Christianity. It can only mar and spoil it. And we need to hear that. And we need to know that. And the reason that it can never improve upon an authentic Christianity is because authentic Bible-based Christianity is already perfect for the simple reason that it is based upon God's wisdom. And I think about how many people live in the world today and they're operating under the assumption that they are experiencing a biblical Christianity as Jesus intended it, but instead they're living this pathetically poor substitute because man's wisdom has been introduced into their relationship with God. Think about how many people are in churches like this, and you may be one of them, just try, quietly trying to introduce yourself back into church or start to try and approach God once again. 
where you were a part of a Christian church or part of a Christian organization and you gave it everything that you had and it didn't turn into this peaceful thing. It wasn't about a relationship with God. It wasn't about pointing you to God and encouraging you in your relationship with God. It was about works and then doing this and then don't doing this and the next and all and the man-made ideas and all of this. And it broke you. And you walk away from all of it like a woman that I talked with three weeks ago walked away from it. I tried. I, I I can't do it. And then to talk with her and try to help her realize she never experienced the Christianity that Jesus died on the cross to provide her with. She went into a system that was just chock full of man's wisdom. And yet she believes she tried Christianity. And when you deal with somebody like that and you start to talk to them about coming to know the Lord or you invite them to church and it's like, no, thank you, I am not going there, it about killed me the last time. And they don't even realize they never came within a 100 miles of the authentic. And there are so many people in that category. And that's the damage that man's wisdom does to the perfection of Christianity as God has revealed it to us in the life of Christ and through his word. Now, in the light of all of this, I want us to notice the Apostle Paul's fabulous elaboration concerning God's wisdom that he makes here in these verses through the Apostle Paul. That was a long introduction. I want to give you hope. We will just bullet point the rest of it because it was important to lay the foundation to then appreciate the truth that Paul's bringing out here. And Paul tells us by the Spirit of God, verse 6, that the wisdom of this age and its leaders is coming to nothing. What more proof do we need than what we see every day? Look at what the wisdom of man is producing in the world all around us. It is breaking people. It is burning people out. People are under so much stress. People are so on edge. The culture gets more and more volatile, more and more combative. And, and, and all the things, that we, the world that we see around us and the wisdom of man, it doesn't produce emotionally stable people or mentally or spiritually healthy and whole lives, peace-filled lives, meaningful lives. People are being crushed today under the weight of man's wisdom, nationally, internationally, individually. It's happening all around us. Maybe happening in your life today, and that's why you're in church today. But there's hope for you. Jeremiah spoke and to the Lord, and he said, Oh, Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. That would change the whole world if it just believed that one half of a verse from the Bible. Oh, Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks. If you've got to walk to get someplace, then you're not qualified to direct your own life. The God who is every place all at once, he's qualified to direct our lives. 
And we need God to do that. And this idea of the wisdom of the age and its leaders coming to nothing, proven true every single day before our very eyes. Second in verse 6, he tells us that the spiritually mature person will recognize that man's wisdom has nothing to offer us spiritually. That man's wisdom cannot improve upon the life that Jesus lived and that he has called us to. And that's the truth of the matter. A sure mark of a spiritually immature person is if they hold the view that human wisdom can in some way improve upon the life that Jesus lived and the life that he has called us to live. Now that's strong, but it's true, and we need to hear it. Third, in verses 7 and 8, he tells us that the single greatest evidence in human history of the fact that man's wisdom has nothing to offer the Christian spiritually was the rejection of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus by the world, by both Jew and Gentile alike. And the same thing is true today. No one who rejects Jesus as their Lord and Savior, no matter how smart they are, No one who rejects Jesus as their Lord and Savior has anything to offer us spiritually because their rejection of Him is the singly most unwise and foolish decision a person can make spiritually. And if they can't see things clear enough to make the right decision there, they have nothing to say anywhere else. I love the clarity of it. Fourth and verse 7 Paul tells us that our wisdom comes from God. You can't get a better source of wisdom than God's wisdom, the one who's created us, the infinite God, the all-knowing God. And then fifth in verses 9 and 10, he tells us that God doesn't reveal his wisdom to us through unsaved man. I want to repeat that. God does not reveal his wisdom to us through unsaved man, but by the Holy Spirit. Notice in verse 9, But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, the things that God has planned for his children are so indescribably great that if you took the collective genius of mankind and put it all together, they couldn't even begin to approach the beautiful and the peerless and incomparable thing that God has planned for us. He tells us in verse 10, but God reveals them to us by His Holy Spirit. Very often, verse 9 is a verse that is sometimes preached on at funerals. Sometimes in a room like this, uh, some of us, the only time we've ever heard verse 9 is when it's referred to concerning heaven. And so we think, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. One day when we get into heaven, then eye will see, then ear will hear. But that's not what it's saying. You notice in verse 10, but God will someday when we get into heaven reveal them to us? That's not what it says. But God has, present tense, revealed them to us through His Holy 
Spirit. That is our portion right now, present tense, revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. And as a Christian who's born again and has experienced an authentic Christian life that's described in the Scriptures, anyone like that knows those things knows that this life and this wisdom is so outrageously excellent that only God could come up with it. What God says in this book, no one else is saying in the whole wide world. No one says what he says in this book. And it runs exactly against the stream of this world. You read biography. You read about some of the most famous military people, authors, uh, poets, musicians, whatever it might be. It's in any category in life. But these are the people that sometimes excel in a particular area before they come to know God. They're highly esteemed by the world before they come to know Christ. And then one day they come to know Christ. And it's interesting to realize that to a man and to a woman, though they go into man's wisdom, explore it in all of its fullness and all of the creativity of their mind, all of the resources that they have materially to experience all of it. And then they come to know Christ and they become the greatest advocates for the rejection of man's wisdom because they know No, nothing compares to the life that they've entered into and that no man could come up with so perfect a salvation, so perfect a recipe for a fulfilled life, a satisfying life, a meaningful life. And I love it when people get saved like that. You can never sucker them to go back to the man man's wisdom or their own wisdom for the rest of their life. They spent the first 50 years of their life being cured of that. And the rest of their life, they're in awe of the wisdom of God. Not just on the printed page, but because it has become their experience. Something they could never experience for all of their life experience prior to coming to know Christ. Then you notice in verses 10 through 12, he tells us why the Holy Spirit is uniquely qualified to supply us wisdom from God. And this is all about the Holy Spirit. To the degree that man's wisdom is exalted in a Christian's life or in a church is to the degree that the Holy Spirit's wisdom is neglected in a church or in a human life. And the Holy Spirit is uniquely qualified to supply us with wisdom from God, he tells us in verse 10, because he searches all things, yes, the deep things of Christ. In other words, he's the only one that knows the deepest things of God, of God the Father. And in the same way, you cannot know anything meaningful about another human being unless they reveal that to you, their spirit inside of them. You have somebody walk into a room, say, I walk into a room, and I just stand in that room. Unless I open my mouth and I communicate something about 
what I feel, how I see things, what I believe about certain things. You don't know anything about me. And I wouldn't know anything about you if the roles were reversed. It is only as a person reveals themselves that we have any hope of understanding the deepest part of their lives. We can never guess it from looking from without. And the same thing is true of God the Father and the Holy Spirit. We cannot know anything about the depths of God's heart, His mind, His wisdom, independent of the Holy Spirit, because He has chosen to reveal those things by His Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul is communicating uh, here. And as a result, we don't want to look, we want to look to the Holy Spirit for wisdom and not seek it from the world. Only the Holy Spirit can reveal God to us in that way. Seventh and verse 13, Paul declares that the writers of the New Testament and of the Bible at large, that they didn't write out of their own wisdom, but in words chosen by the Holy Spirit, who by divine inspiration gave them the spiritual truths, and then on top of that, the ability to communicate it in spiritual words, which makes a huge and important point to us related to this subject. You say, where in the world can I go to get this wisdom from the Holy Spirit? There is no greater place than the Word of God. And that's what Paul is declaring here. The single greatest place we can go to in order to receive God's wisdom through His Holy Spirit is to the Bible. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And Jesus declared, These things I've spoken unto you while being present. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Notice, notice number 8 in verse 14. He said that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. How, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So how can such a person impart spiritual wisdom to us if he knows nothing of the Holy Spirit and, and, and has received no impartation? of spiritual wisdom from the Holy Spirit. And because the unsaved world is in a spiritually dead condition, they have nothing to offer us as Christians in speaking to things that are spiritual. And I think all of us, we understand, most of us in this room, we had a before Christ period in our life, and then we had our Christian life now. Some of us remember trying to read the Bible before we became a Christian. Like the deadest book in the whole world. So why in the world would anybody read that book? I can't make heads or tails of that book. And yet my mom reads it every day. She'd rather not, she'd rather not have her daily physical bread than to deny herself the reading of the bread of the Word of God. And before we come to know Christ, we know these people, whether it's a mother or a father or a son or a daughter, an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent or a friend, and they are living off of the Word of God. We pick it up out of respect for them. We can't make any sense of it at all. And then what happens? We put our faith in Christ. We're born again. The Holy Spirit, the author of the Bible, comes inside of us, and it explodes to life for us. 
And we begin to understand it. And then we find ourselves in the place where we crave the reading of the Word of God on a daily basis more than we would crave a physical meal. Think about sometimes before you come to know the Lord and somebody invites you to church, that may be you here this morning. <laughs> you come to church before you're a Christian. You say, what in the world? Don't these people know there are other things going on out there? There's like 47,000 channels on the television to say nothing of Netflix and how many concerts and ball games and all these other things that they could be doing, and they're going into that room Sunday after Sunday, and sometimes they are insane enough to go to church multiple times in a week. And you sit in a room like this even this morning, and you listen to the songs being sung, and you say, who in the world are they singing these songs to? acting like God's in the room. And what in the world is that man talking about up there so long about these things? And then you become a Christian and the Holy Spirit comes inside of you and we can't wait to assemble together to praise the Lord and worship Him in song and in the study of His Word. And it's the Holy Spirit that makes all of the difference. Being born again, that spiritual birth, and then he tells us in verse 15, and this is important, that we are not to let the spiritually dead make us think that they have anything to offer us spiritually. How many ways does Paul, have to, by the Spirit of God, have to say this very same thing for us as Christians, except that we need it to be said a hundred different ways so that we accept it? That we don't let the spiritually dead make us think that they have anything to offer us spiritually and don't let the spiritually dead judge you as ignorant in some way spiritually and in need of his wisdom. You take a person who is unsaved and they have multiple PhDs, unbelievable capacity for learning, and yet concerning spiritual things, you put them on one side of the scale, you put someone on the other side of the scale that barely got their GED, but they're filled with the Holy Spirit, they love the Holy Spirit, you put them on the other side of the scale, and they will be able to understand the things of God in a way that this person can never dream of. And it's all the Holy Spirit. It's all the Holy Spirit. He makes the difference. And then notice in verse 16, God knows what He's talking about. There's no one smarter than Him is what Paul's telling us. And so let's always go to Him for our wisdom. Who else would we go to? And then as we've already noticed in verse 16, He tells us that we have the mind of Christ. The same Holy Spirit that came into Jesus' life when he began his public ministry and was water baptized by John the Baptist, the same Holy Spirit that came upon Jesus to begin his ministry is the same Holy Spirit that now indwells us. And he gives us the means by which to look at all of life the way that Jesus looks at life. And when you have the mind of Christ, that ends the discussion in terms of wisdom. And by the Holy Spirit, we have the mind of Christ. So I close with this. Our wisdom concerning spiritual things already comes from the highest possible source, the Holy Spirit Himself. We do not need man's wisdom concerning spiritual things. And second, as a church, we're to realize that 
the world's wisdom has nothing to offer us related to our relationship with God, but to not only understand it as a church, to understand it individually. When you read the Christian books that you read, not even to talk about secular books, and you expose yourself to this thing and that thing and all and different kinds of things and to look and to say, does that come from God's wisdom or man's wisdom? Let's study the life of Jesus in our Bible and then let's appropriate that life and that wisdom into our own lives and the power of the Holy Spirit and then we'll be living the greatest life a person can live. It's the life that God created for us. Paul wrote to the church at Colossae and he said, for in him, that is Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And then listen to this, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Never let your walk with God ever be attacked or sidetracked by the persuasive words of human wisdom. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit for wisdom in our lives. He can't be improved upon. We have the Word of God, and then we have the priceless life of Christ that is laid out to us here in the Scriptures who came into the world to not only save us from our sins, but to show us how life is really meant to be lived. And that is the test we're to put our Christianity to. And everything that doesn't match the test, out it goes. And the wisdom of this world has nothing to add to the wisdom of God. It can never, ever improve upon our relationship with God. It can only mar it. You say, that's an obvious truth. It's not that obvious. And evidently, we need to hear it over and over and over again. And it's important to allow these things to search our own personal relationship with God so that we're experiencing that relationship the way that God wants us to and in the light of the price that he was willing to pay for us to experience that relationship. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service And they'd love to pray with you to receive Jesus into your heart, to put your faith in him for the forgiveness of sins and receive salvation and forgiveness as a free gift from God. And it's all there for the receiving, and it's all there just for the asking. Today's the day of salvation. If you think you've tried Christianity, but you realize today you've tried some kind of a hybrid of you don't know what, God is still waiting for you, and he has the life of His Son waiting to now lead you into the beauty of that life. And it's all there to be received here this morning. Take advantage of the opportunity. Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He said, Take my yoke upon me and learn of me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. He said, Take, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. People are getting crushed by man's wisdom today. And it's not going to get better. 
and people are being crushed by their own wisdom. You are not meant to live under man's wisdom or your own wisdom. You've been created to live under the wisdom of God. And some people come to know the Lord when they're on the mountaintop experience. They have everything they ever wanted in life. They get there, they achieve it, and then they realize that the thing that was going to satisfy them didn't satisfy them. They're as empty as they ever were, and they put their faith in Christ from that place. Others come to know Christ when they're rock bottom, broken, destroyed by their own wisdom and the wisdom of this world, and they have no place else to turn to, and they say, all right, I'm done with the experiment. I'm going to give my life to my Creator and see what He can do, and He will be happy to do what He alone can do in your life. Come forward after the service and allow these men and women to pray with you and to pray for you. Let's stand together and we'll pray now. Thank you, Father, for this passage of Scripture. A little demanding to listen to and to concentrate on, but very rewarding and very necessary. And Lord, we acknowledge that the city of Corinth is not an ancient city, but the city of Corinth has become Modesto and it has become California. And it has become the United States, and it has become the whole wide world. There is man's wisdom, and then there is your wisdom. There are the casualties of man's wisdom, and then there is the beauty of the life that you produce. And Lord, we pray that you would use this passage and this time in your word this morning to wherever necessary in our individual walk with you, anything that needs to be pruned away, of man's wisdom, our own ideas, our own self-definitions of Christianity that is moving us very, very far away from what you intended to be. And then, Lord, to bring us into the authentic, into the glory of what it is that you have for us. Out of your incomparable and loving heart for each one of us, we pray that you use this morning as a time to protect us as we continue our pilgrimage on our way to heaven, Lord, that you would protect our Christianity from ever being hijacked and marred and disfigured by the wisdom of man or our own wisdom, Lord. And so we pray that those two great things would be accomplished through your word today. We want to experience what Jesus experienced what he died for us to experience, and nothing else, Lord. And we thank you for the place that this passage plays in all of that. May it have its needed and powerful work, Lord, in each one of our lives individually and in us as a church. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.